The Bob Murphy Show, episode 240. you gonna do get ready for another episode of the bob murphy show the podcast promoting free markets free minds and grateful souls it's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a christian and economist now here's your host bob murphy hey everybody welcome to another episode of the bob murphy show Today, we're going to be covering two separate topics because I don't know how long I'm going to go on each one of them. I want to give you a a full episode. And the first topic is going to be Russian moves to strengthen the ruble. And I just want to walk you guys through the economics of that stuff, just so you're thinking about it properly. And then the second one is going to be standard libertarian theory and how does it relate to ethics and basically who the bad guys are and what you're allowed to do. I think I've touched on it before, but there was a recent comment made on one of my recent episodes that I think it's worth walking through because it's a serious topic and you'll see once we get there. But first, the economic stuff. So there was a Zero Hedge article that was making the rounds recently, which as is its one, was a reprint of someone by Ronan Manley that's kind of a good name, right? Ronan Manley. And you wonder if the kid's born in that family. What if one of them turns out to be sort of a, a sissy? What happens to that guy? I guess, does he get disowned? Who knows? Maybe he has to marry a woman and take the woman's name so he's no longer manly. But in any event, the name of this article was, or the title was, A Paradigm Shift Western Media Hasn't Grasped Yet. Russian Ruble Relaunch Linked to Gold and Commodities. Okay, so this was back in April 4th. And at first, I wasn't going to cover it because by the time I got around to researching this stuff and looking into it, it seemed like this particular policy had been dropped. But a reader emailed me asking about a related issue with tying gas per natural gas purchases and insisting on them being done in rubles. And he had a good insight that I agreed with. And so since I was going to cover that, I might as well circle back and cover the stuff about gold. All right. So what the policy was back in either late March or early April, was that the Russian central bank announced that it was going to begin buying gold from Russian banks at a fixed price of 5,000 rubles per gram. And then people were arguing that, for example, Ronan Manley was saying, oh, people haven't realized this paradigm shift. The ruble's going to soar now because they're making the first moves towards having a gold-backed ruble. You know, the other Western powers with their purely fiat currencies. And now, you know, this is the end of dollar hegemony, that sort of stuff. So to be clear, I'm not denying that in the long run. So for one thing, for sure, I don't think the US dollar is going to be the world's reserve currency 15 years from now. Okay. It might even be a lot shorter, but let me just cover myself. I mean, we already see signs of that, right? That the people now, when they talk about the uh, SDRs, that special drawing rights for the IMF basket of currencies, that the proportions that are assigned to the various constituents that has moved in recent years so that the U.S. dollar is no longer as dominant as it once would have been. So that trend is already in place, but I think it's just going to be clear, let's say 15 years from now, that the U.S. dollar is not 
the hot commodity that it is right now. And certainly U.S. treasuries are not considered the global safe asset the way, ironically, they still are. Okay, so I do agree with that stuff. So don't misunderstand the critique I'm about to give here of Ronan Manley's analysis. But my point is that what the Russian central bank announced, that by itself really wasn't a big deal. Okay, all that really did was, so again, the policy they announced was, and they dropped it soon afterwards, my understanding. But for a while, and by a while, it might have only been like a couple of weeks, the Russian central bank said, we are going to buy gold from commercial Russian banks at this fixed price of 5,000 rubles per gram. And so apparently when they made that announcement, the ruble did strengthen. But what I want to point out is I think that reasoning or, or the, the explanation for that is just that investors thought, oh, okay, maybe they're going to do other policies down the road. That by itself, the mere fact of them offering to, you know, having this standing offer that say, hey, anybody that wants to hand gold over to us, we'll give you 5,000 rubles per gram. That per se doesn't do anything to strengthen the ruble. Okay, what that actually does, if you want to think it through, is it provides a floor price in rubles on gold. It means that if you are sitting on gold, it would be stupid for you to sell it to anybody else for less than 5,000 rubles per gram. But it does not at all establish that if you're holding rubles, oh, don't sell it to somebody over here at a weak price, you know, where the ruble is very weak because... The Russian central banks over here, no, the Russian central, and so this is a critical thing in case you're not getting it. My understanding was, and nobody, there's nothing in this article, and when I asked about this on Twitter, which is really the clearinghouse of all information at this point, nobody said anything to the contrary. But my understanding is the Russian central bank was not saying that it goes the other way, that if you have rubles and you want gold, then you can give us 5,000 rubles and we'll give you a gram of gold. That's not what they were saying. They were just saying, if you have gold, we will give you this many rubles per gram for it. Okay. And so that's really the critical thing. And that's why this was not at all establishing a gold-backed ruble. It was establishing ruble-backed gold, if you think about it that way. Okay. So again, it was a tentative first step. And people arguing that this was the first step towards the ultimate goal of having a fully-backed gold currency once again as we you know, had back in the day before World War I. Fair enough, if that's what the argument was. But again, this particular move by itself wouldn't do anything to strengthen the ruble. Just like I could announce to the world, hey, everybody, if you want to give me an ounce of gold, I will give you $500. I promise you, I will have that offer in place for any takers. You give me an ounce of gold, and I will give you 500 US dollars to as many people as want to take me up on that deal. And that's certainly doesn't put me in an awkward position, right? And it doesn't do anything to strengthen the US dollar. All it would do is in the scenario where for some reason, the gold price collapsed and fell below $500 an ounce, then everybody would sell their gold to me until I ran out of dollars. All right. So that's maybe the way to think about that one. Okay. So a related issue is, okay, what about Russia's insistence, you know, with the sanctions that were imposed on them because of the invasion of Ukraine. What about the new policy of Russia saying, okay, well, for our natural gas exports, we're going to insist that you pay us in rubles. So this one has more plausibility that, you know, people are saying, oh, that's going to strengthen the ruble. 
And Putin is a sly character by insisting on this. So again, though, I, I think it's, it's overblown. And so before I forget, let me just mention the listener who suggested this topic. He had the essential insight too that I think, you know, as a, as a first pass is the important thing when you're walking through, gee, the Russian central bank or, you know, just the Russian system in general, they're insisting on when we give, in case you don't know, I mean, I'm sure you have if you're following the news at all, but Russia exports a lot of natural gas to Europe, particularly Germany. Germany is very dependent in the near term on Russian natural gas. So lots of people need those exports. And so by Russia saying, hey, you can't pay us in dollars or euros or whatever, that if we're going to give you natural gas exports, then you have to go get rubles first and pay us in rubles. That's the only payment we'll accept. And so the thinking is, and why people assume that, oh yeah, that's clearly going to strengthen the ruble and oh, what a crafty move by Putin. The, he's playing hardball. The thinking is, okay, so now all these, from their point of view, importers of Russian natural gas, you know, let, let's say you, were, you used to pay with dollars. Well, now because Putin is saying, no, you got to pay us in rubles, you got to take those dollars, go to the foreign exchange market and you know, the currency markets, take your dollars that before you would have used just to hand over to Russia and say, here, give me my natural gas, please. Now you got to go to the foreign exchange market, take those dollars and say, give me some rubles, please, to somebody. And then that person gives you the rubles. Then you take the rubles and you go over to Putin and say, here you go, Vladimir, can I get some natural gas? And so this step in the argument or the, in that process is the part where you're now taking the dollars and buying rubles with them. So the argument is that's what's now providing extra demand for the ruble, providing extra strength. All the people before that had other currencies, well, it's like the US dollar who were just directly trading dollars for Russian natural gas. Now they have to first redirect those into the foreign exchange markets. So it would seem like other things equal. Now all of a sudden there's an augmentation of the dollar demand for the ruble. And so shouldn't that make the ruble strengthen against the dollar? Other things equal, right? It seems pretty straightforward. But this guy who emailed me about it, and I, I agreed with him. So his name was Tom Pazivio. He said I could use his name. I want to give credit to him. He had this insight, and I, and I think this is correct. When you're, when you're thinking through the standard economics of this, that no, that particular effect actually isn't that big of a deal because there's two scenarios, two ways of thinking about it. So what you want to do is compare it to the counterfactual of what if Russia didn't institute that policy or maybe what's the same way is to say, what was the status quo before this new policy? So before somebody wants to buy the Russian natural gas and they had a bunch of dollars, okay? And they, let's just say it's a million dollars worth, okay? They would hand the million dollars over to the Russian natural gas, Gazprom or whatever, natural gas company. And then the gas company would give them the uh, cubic units in the metric system, of course, because they're over there in natural gas. And then they would be sitting on a million dollars. So now what would Gazprom do with the million dollars? It would go and buy rubles with it, or it could. All right. So if that's what it originally did, you know, before this policy, it just took its dollars and went and bought rubles with it. Well, then all Putin's move does 
is change the timing and it just changes the party that has to do it, right? So in the status quo, before all this happened, the importer would take the million dollars, give it to Gazprom. Gazprom would then take the million dollars, go to the exchange markets and buy rubles with it. Now what happens is they just change the order of those steps. The de- import, you know, the, the importer in Europe takes a million U.S. dollars, goes to the foreign exchange markets, buys rubles with it, and then gives it to Gazprom, and then they end up at the same spot. Now, it, you can say, well, what if Gazprom never did exchange it? You know, in the, even in the status quo, even before the invasion of Ukraine, what if Gazprom just sat, you know, held as part of its reserves U.S. dollar assets or euro assets, you know, just to be diversified and whatever, because it didn't, okay. But then, you know, Putin could have just said, is the policy, hey, our own banks and other financial institutions here domestically, I don't want you holding so many foreign denominated assets. You need to switch over into ruble denominated assets. And that would have had basically the same effect. Okay. So to me, all this is really doing, it's not so much forcing foreigners to strengthen the ruble. It's really just it best, I think, pushing some transaction costs onto foreigners rather than imposing them on domestic parties. And to the extent that there really is a fundamental shift in the demand for the ruble, I think it's because it's forcing implicitly domestic, you know, Russian entities from holding more rubles as opposed to dollar assets or euro assets than they were before. Okay, so it's not really that it's sticking it to the foreigners. I think it's more sticking it to the Russians. All right, so that's kind of the analysis. Now, as I was walking through this, one little quirk is there might be something going on where once the invasion of Ukraine occurred, let me back up a second. So one of the things that occurred to me to explain why, well, wait a minute, this, I don't think this is as significant as a lot of people are making it out to be, is that why does... Putin have to wait till right now. And why doesn't every country in the world just do this? Like any, you know, tiny little country somewhere, especially like a, like a so-called cash crop exporter, you know, some country in South America that just sells coffee beans or something. Why don't they just say to the rest of the world, Hey, instead of paying us in dollars or euros, we insist that you pay us in our local currency. And then, Hey, that'll make our currency great. And they're not doing that a lot. You know, a lot of them are willing to accept other currencies. Or more generally, even you as a supplier of labor services, you know, instead of going to your employer, let's say you're in the United States and having them pay you in dollars, why don't you just make your own currency? You know, whatever your name is, if your name is Tom Pazivio, why don't you make Pazivio coins and issue those? And then you say, yeah, but where are you going to get the demand for those? That's the problem, right? With all these altcoins. No, you just go to your boss and you say, hey, instead of paying me in dollars, I want you to pay me in these things called Pazivio coins. And then that way, haha, not only do you get paid, you know, for your labor services, but you're propping up the demand for this new crypto coin that you're issuing. Look at that. And I think if you can think through the ramifications and the logic, you can see why that doesn't work. Because, I mean, you might have a slight margin if you price it such that from your boss's perspective, it's just like a little bit of an inconvenience, you know, that he's got to tell the accounting department. Yeah, we got this weird guy working over in uh in marketing and instead of getting paid in dollars, he would like you to first, you know, take the amount we would have paid him, go into the uh, you know, crypto markets there, you know, go get a Coinbase account or something. I don't even know how this stuff works, and then figure out how to get these Pazivio coins and then pay him in those things. 
And so they could just run them and say, well, do we want to do that? And they would run the numbers and just see, well, you know, the exchange rate that he's insisting on, you know, we used to pay him whatever, $80 an hour. How many Pazivio coins per hour does he want to be paid? And then you would just go look at what the market prices of that thing. And you would, you know, so really it would probably be just saying, okay, we would do it, but we're not going to pay you a fixed amount. In other words, he'd say, well, I'm not going to write the contract denominated in Pazivio coins because it's too volatile. I will still pay you the same amount we would have paid in dollars. And because of the hassle of going through all these other extra transactions in order to pay you rather than the rest of our staff, you're actually going to get less take home. So it might be worth it to you if you live embedded in a society, like a little community where everybody's using Pazivio coins and you would have originally taken your dollar payment from your employer and turned it into Pazivio coins, then maybe that's saving you some of the hassle because you're just having your employer do it. Just like for me, I do some work for a Canadian think tank and I don't want them paying me in Canadian dollars just because then I would have to go convert to US dollars. So I have them pay me in US dollars and they handle it on their, well, banks handle it obviously. But the point is if you were issuing your own coin, crypto coin, there's no magic bullet where you just, oh, I just insist that people pay me. And even again, if, you know, even if like an an actor, you know, you might say, well, that's because maybe Tom Pazivio doesn't have very special skills. Sorry, Tom. But okay, what if Keanu Reeves said for his next film, no, I want to be paid in Neo coin or uh, what's the, no, I'm blanking. (laughs) The guy he plays that kills everybody that like shoots and in the head and stuff, and he has a huge body count. Whatever that guy's name is, that's escaping me at the moment. John Wick, right? You know, Wick coin, and they, the coins, you know, the logo is like of a dog that's got an X through it. He could do that, right? But again, so the producers of the film would just run the numbers, and they would say, okay, well, instead of paying him, you know, it's not that that's some way that, ha, now Keanu boosts demand, except indirectly, like, that would give publicity to his coin, and people who didn't think through the logic of it might then assume, oh, it's going to take off because now he's doing that policy. And he, okay, so yeah, there's that element. But in terms of the fundamentals, that doesn't really do too much. Okay, so that's the way to you know think through. But then, like I say, as I was just even now explaining it to you folks, there is a slight quirk where that occurred to me where once the invasion of Ukraine occurred and the sanctions were imposed, if Western powers were still granting exemptions for natural gas exports, or at least the European powers were. Like Germany was talking with the U.S. and saying, you know, we're we're fine putting sanctions on or penalizing these oligarchs and all that, but we can't just say we're not buying natural gas right now. That'll cripple our economy. So we're not going along with that. And Biden, when he made his announcements, was sort of giving them permission, saying, yeah, we got to understand their position, blah, blah, blah. So if still dollar or euro payments are flowing into Gazprom or whatnot for their natural gas. But now, because of the inter, you know, the penalties on the SWIFT system and all that, if it's difficult for the Russian financial institutions to take their dollars, for example, and go buy rubles with it, just because there's all these roadblocks now in terms of, of capital flowing into Russia, as it were. So yeah, you're allowed to send dollars in for natural gas, but in general, you're not allowed to transfer funds into Russian institutions. So now maybe, yes, it would just be because of the sanctions difficult for those Russian institutions to go to the foreign exchange markets and take their dollars and buy rubles with it just because, oh, there's all these sanctions. Okay, but even if that is the issue, 
right? So what I'm saying is if the reason Putin's move you think actually was going to make a difference given the existence of these sanctions is because, oh, you know, once dollars flow into the country, it's hard to turn them into rubles. So we'll just have our trading partners do it outside. But again, if the sanctions are in place, if a Russian bank isn't allowed to take dollars and buy rubles with it, surely it's harder for a bank in Germany to do it, right? So I'll just say that again, whatever the existing regime of sanctions is, surely if you have dollars and you want to turn them into rubles, there's going to be fewer legal repercussions if you're a bank doing business in Russia, right? You're less likely to get punished by the authorities if you're a bank in Russia and you're trying to take dollars and buy rubles with it than if you're a bank in Germany and you're trying to take dollars and buy rubles with it, I would think. But maybe there is some weird you know, way that those sanctions are set up that that's not the case. But in any event, it would have to be something like that in order for this thing to even make sense on the surface. And then more generally too, like, uh, let me just talk about people often allege that, oh, the reason certain countries got invaded by the U.S. had nothing to do with democracy and human rights and things like that. It was just if, you know, like if Qaddafi's running his mouth about maybe we should start moving away from dollar payments for oil or, you know, Saddam Hussein might have been talking like that. And that's the real reason to understand what's going on in the Middle East. So again, with the direct economics of it, I think is pretty trivial that really all you're doing at best is making it so that a bunch of clearing houses might have to carry larger balances of whatever the other currency is, you know, the euro or the yuan or something besides the US dollar. Just as if, you know, if you're going to go to a foreign country, you're going to Mexico, let's say, and you are just going to be walking around looking for stuff to buy, going to restaurants, you might carry a bit more in your pockets of that local currency than you would if you stayed back home, right? So yes, the fact that you're going to embed yourself in a region and engage in commerce with entities that want to be paid in a different currency that forces you to carry a larger amount of that in your cash holdings. But in terms of like looking at how much do you spend over the course of the year and trying to run the numbers that way and thinking that's how much the demand is going to be boosted, that's not correct because it's a flow, right? So just like you wouldn't look at how much you spend every year in your own country and your own domestic currency and then say, oh, that's how much risk my cash balance is at any given time, right? It's not that you have a year's worth of purchases piled up in your wallet or even your bank account, and then you draw that down to zero during the 12 months, and then it gets restored back, right? The amount you actually hold at any given time is a small fraction of your flow of purchases. So likewise, even when some of these oil exporters might have switched and said, we're going to insist on getting paid not in US dollars, but in other currencies, yeah, that might slightly boost besides the effects I talked about where it's really just changing the sequence. If it does cause these other financial institutions to carry larger balances just because things aren't planned perfectly and they just need to have you know a margin of error now, they might carry larger balances of that other currency than they would have originally. But in the grand scheme, I just, I don't think the numbers are that significant. Hey, everybody, just your usual reminder, if you like what you're hearing here on the show, please consider contributing. Any amount helps and a recurring monthly contribution is the best of all. For more details and to see the special perks you can get, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash contribute. Thanks.
the last thing I'll say is, oh, geez, Bob, you got a lot of on the other hands here. Well, I'm an economist. What I could see, though, is it's more of a, um, in effect, based on like the perception or expectations or prestige. Okay. So to the extent that, oh, the reason the US dollar is considered unassailable is just because everyone thinks it is. And the reason US treasuries are considered safe is because that's what everyone thinks they are. But if somehow serious doubt were to enter everybody's mind and people were worried that, oh man, maybe the Chinese next week are going to start dumping treasuries, then it can become a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? That the nature of fiat currencies and things like this in these assets that are arguably in huge bubbles is, oh, well, they stay high until they don't. And so you could make an argument that, yes, in terms of the basic fundamentals, if we are talking about something like how come we got in this equilibrium where everyone around the world accepts dollars, even though it's not backed up by anything, and even though at this point the Federal Reserve is acting recklessly, well, then slight changes could have huge effects beyond relationship to what the direct impact ostensibly would have been or should have been. Okay. So yeah, there's that kind of a thing too, that the reason the U.S. has to nip in the bud, anybody who's talking about, hey, we're going to do oil exports and you got to pay us in something besides dollars. Like, no, no, we just got to shut down that talk altogether. Nobody talks like that. Sort of like the dictator, if somebody spray paints graffiti on a bridge saying, you know, the dictator is a monster, you got to wipe that up right away. Right. And you might think, well, gee, the guy's got troops and tanks and stuff like that. And he controls the educational system. Who cares about a little bit of graffiti? But it's, you know, it can have a cascade effect. It's kind of like, no, you got to just keep a total lockdown on the narrative. And you, you got to get rid of that right away. Right. So there could be that sort of element involved. Okay. The last thing I'll say on this topic is if you want to know more about, well, gee, how would a government, if, if it were still going to be in charge of currency policy, but we're just going to go complete laissez-faire and just say, we're getting out of money and banking altogether, just let the market decide. But if a government did want to go back towards something like the classical gold standard, how would it do it? The best proposal I've seen is actually from Ludwig von Mises, right? So Carlos Lara and I, I think maybe I've told this story before, in our book, How Privatized Banking Really Works, we had a proposal for how could the U.S. government go back to gold. And it involved, you know, because at that point when we wrote it, it was... I forget the exact year. I want to say like 2010, something like that. So this was after, you know, the QE programs had been initiated and the Fed was sitting on huge amounts of mortgage-backed securities and treasuries. And we were saying, well, what the Fed could do is announce a price of gold and say, we will buy and sell dollars for gold at this rate. And they could, as their you know, mortgage-backed securities and treasuries matured, they could use those funds to go start stockpiling gold to give credibility to the policy to show if you turn in your dollars, we can, you know, we have adequate gold reserves to satisfy a lot of people. But the problem with that was it was sort of arbitrary as to, well, what gold price do you announce? And it seemed like central planning, like, you know, we're kind of picking a number out of the air. Obviously, we weren't going to say $2 an ounce and we weren't going to say $60 million an ounce. And it just seemed like either way, you were either going to cause painful deflation or inflation and, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't clear. How to, so anyway, Mises, I think, came up with the most straightforward example or proposal and a link to this, of course. So it's bobmurphyshow.com slash 240, where he just said, at the moment of reform, you just check what the market price is. And then you just say, OK, boom, going forward, commercial banks cannot issue more demand deposits denominated in the domestic currency. And the government cannot issue more base money of, you know, the legal tender of this money unless people come and deposit the requisite amount of gold, 
right? So, you know, at the moment of this reform, it kicks in. Let's say the price of gold is $2,000 an ounce, right? When, you know, the reform kicks in. And so then the government just now has a standing offer to say, we will not, you know, the Federal Reserve says, we will not generate more dollars, you know, more reserves, more base money, unless you come and you give us an ounce of gold. And then we will give you 2,000 newly created dollars. And the same thing with the commercial banks, that they will say, we will not grant you a checking account deposit unless you first come and give us the right amount of gold. You know, or you could give us dollars and that would just be transferring it from somewhere else. But in terms of the, the ability of the banks to create new dollars, you know, to boost M1, that you can't do that unless you have unit for unit gold in on deposit, like sitting in vaults that backs up the newly created dollars in the, in the financial system. Okay, so it doesn't immediately make dollars backed 100% by gold. What it does, though, is, is from that point forward, any new dollars created are backed 100% by gold. And so over time, as the economy grows and the demand to hold dollars increases, the proportion of dollars backed by gold goes up. So, you know, in the very long run, it would asymptotically approach 100%, but at any moment, it's not. All right, so that was Mises' proposal, you know, for this is how you would transition back to a fully backed gold currency without you having to, and again, you, you announce like the details of the policy and then maybe give a period for the markets to adjust and then you lock in whatever the market price is at some date, okay? And so that was the way he did it where you didn't have the painful dislocation of immediately slamming on the brakes or inflating too much to, you know, to try to immediately get back to 100% reserves because just to give you a little more background, because some proposals say things like, oh, well, what we should do is look at how many dollars exist around the world and look at how much gold stocks that the Fed currently has or claims it has in the federal government, and then just divide and say, okay, so now the new gold price is blah, blah, blah. And that's a big number, right? Because there's a lot of dollars in existence compared to how much gold there had. And so if you were to do that, that could screw things up too or at least it wouldn't have much of an effect for a while because, well, well in any event, I'll, I'll just stop that train of thought. But the, my point is if you go and lock in a price and it's this huge dollar price per gold, way higher than the current market price, it's not obvious that that's the move towards monetary integrity either. Whereas again, Mises proposal uses the existing market price as the anchor, but doesn't insist that we immediately like suck away the dollars that aren't backed up by gold. It just is more of a transition. Okay, so that's that. So let me now transition to, I can be somewhat quick on this. So it was a comment that was left in Bob Murphy's show episode 237, where I talked about the dehumanization on the left and right. Someone left a comment on, on the episode and I'll read, I won't say the guy's name. And he was quoting me and this sounds like something I said. So I don't know whether this is the exact right words, but this is definitely the spirit of what I said. In the episode, I said something along the lines of, the moral worth of a human being, it's not whether they have the right response to the question of what should the marginal income tax rate be, right? That's the point I was making that you, you know, that I was concerned that some people on the right, whereas the left was dehumanizing people because, oh, hey, if you're not woke, you know, if you don't have the right views on leftist ideology, then you're a non-person and, you know, we don't care, you shouldn't get healthcare and blah, blah, blah. But I was pointing out that on the right, you see a similar thing. And in, like in libertarian circles, you've seen that Certain people, if somebody doesn't agree with our politics, then, you know, they're, they're NPCs, you know, that kind of thing. And again, so again, so I had, and I said, everybody's got a soul, you know, everybody's a child of God. And 
that's just not, certainly if you're a Christian, you shouldn't be thinking like that. Okay. And so again, I apparently said something like the worth of a human being. It's not whether they had the right response to what should the marginal income tax rate be. This person comes back and says, kind of is. The right response is zero. Thou shalt not steal. And an incorrect answer to that means the person deserves to die, basically. Every act of coercion is ultimately backed by deadly force. Okay, so this guy is saying, in contrast to my claim, that no, when I go around and if I ask people, what should the marginal income tax rate be? If they say anything other than zero, that person deserves to die. Now, in fairness, the guy's not saying we should kill him, even though that word deserve kind of implies that. But you could say, well, from a Christian perspective, Christians say things often like everybody deserves to go to hell, but then God has mercy, you know, that kind of stuff. So to be clear, you know, I have serious problems with some of that conventional framing of what the issues are. But in fairness to this guy, I don't want to put words in his mouth. I don't know that he literally was saying it would be a better world if all these people were to be disappeared. But he did say what he said. And I'm, I want to say, no, that that is not right. Okay. So one thing is just step back and look at how many people around the world are not anarcho-capitalists. It's the vast majority of them. Okay. So if your moral framework spits out the answer that you think 95% plus of humanity deserves to die, you have made a mistake in your reasoning, right? That cannot be correct. Just like when the left says, oh, Mother Earth is being overtaxed, no pun intended, and she can't support that the humans are our parasites and we really need to re reduce the population by 95%. And that horrifies normal people, right? People who have just standard views like, whoa, you've really gotten this, you know, you've been reading too much Paul Ehrlich or something. And that's, you've made a mistake in your reasoning when you end up at that uh, destination. And so again, likewise, if your views of the non-aggression principle and reading Rothbard lead you to conclude 95% of humanity deserves to die, you have made a mistake. That's not right. Okay, another observation. You just said Ludwig von Mises deserves to die. Okay, Mises was not against taxation per se. He wasn't naive about it, but he thought the government needed to raise revenue and that you couldn't just rely on voluntary contributions. He thought the government had a role to play in the maintenance of law and order. Okay, so again, that you could say, well, tough for Lou, but that's another like odd thing. Another observation is probably you yourself, when you were younger, believed in taxation. And so again, is it just good that, oh, nobody acted on this moral principle that you're upholding, saying that, oh yeah, when I was 12, I did deserve to die, but you know, I guess I got lucky and now I don't deserve to die. And another thing too is, it's not clear to me are you forgiven? You know what I mean? Like, because again, in that guy's parenthetical remark about every threat of government coercion, you know, is ultimately backed up by deadly force. Like that's the link he's making. So he's saying, because if I believe in taxation, that means I was okay with, you know, knowing that the IRS is, you know, first they'll be quote polite about it and they'll, they'll send notices to you like, Hey, you owe us this much money. But if you just say, no, 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 ultimately you could be killed by agents of the state. Maybe just police trying to arrest you when you go to do something and, you know, try to spend money that the IRS says is theirs. And then you say, well, I'm going to go get my money. I'm going to go into the bank with a gun and get the money that actually is mine, even though because they garnish my wages. And then the police show up and they're, you know, silly, those cops are viewing you as a bank robber because you showed up to a bank with a gun and you're saying, give me money. So the police understandably come and use force against you, even though you've read your Rothbard and you're just taking what's yours. 
and then you end up dead. So I think that's what the guy who left that comment, that's what his position is, is to say, ultimately, if you're in favor of taxation, you're okay with the government killing people in the process of stealing what's rightfully theirs. And so therefore, you deserve to die. And so I'm saying, if what's in people's heads, ultimately, if their support for those policies means they deserve to die, well, then even if they change their mind down the road, it's not clear to me that now all of a sudden they don't deserve to die, right? Like in other words, if let's say you mugged somebody 10 years ago and then later, you know, you had an epiphany and you realized, oh yeah, theft is wrong. And now you don't mug people anymore. Does that mean you, you know, you're no longer culpable for what you did 10 years ago? Not in standard. I mean, there might be like statute of limitations and things like that in terms of the arbitrariness of the legal code, but in terms of morality or, or say you mugged somebody last year, you're still culpable for that, even if you say, oh, no, 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 I realize now that what I did was wrong. So I'm so I'm saying even to me, it's not clear that right now it's just the people who currently support taxation. But I think if you ever did in your life, arguably you deserve to die, according to this guy's framework. All right. So again, I and I'm not just picking on this guy that I see this kind of talk a lot, in particular, when people are trying to justify using violence to stand up to the aggressors and then other people have, you know, are concerned about, well, Hey guys, let's not become the monster here. We have to follow rules. You know, we can't be as bad as them and let's not hurt innocent people. And basically, well, there are no innocent people. The way the system works right now is anybody who is not on our team is collaborating with the enemy. And so therefore, you know, everything's on the table, which, you know, again, that's the same mentality that justified firebombing whole cities and things, that there's no such thing as innocent civilians. Everything's a military target in modern warfare because even people just going to work, they support the munitions ultimately. So it's not just the soldier on the front line, but it's the people back home working at the factories. And it's even the women working at daycare facilities because by providing daycare, they allow those parents to go to the factories to make munitions. So therefore everybody is the enemy and we can do whatever we want to them. And I'm just saying that's the logic that both sides use. And that's why this world is in such a horrible spot right now. Okay, I will wrap it up there. Thanks for your attention, everybody. I don't have too many links for this one, but I do have some. So go to bobmurphyshow.com slash 240. And I'll see you next time. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit BobMurphyShow.com.